It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Today on Moment of Truth, we are going to be doing a bit of a special event for you. And that is, we're going to be speaking with a couple of people, but the first part of the show, I'm going to be speaking with one person in particular, Tom Tom Bowman, and he is the author of What If Solving the Climate Crisis is Simple? Uh, Tom Bowman is the guest on the first part of the show. We're going to be joined maybe later on in the show by Deb Morrison, or definitely for sure in the second part of the show, because this part, this book, leads into another book that both Tom and Deb worked on, and it moves things forward. So we'll get to that in a little bit. But right now, a little bit more about Tom Bowman. He's a strategic advisor and writing team lead for the U.S. Action for Climate Empowerment Strategic Planning Framework. The framework is an initiative by social scientists, educators, scientists, and activists to help the United States meet and exceed the goals of the Paris Agreement. Tom founded Bowman Design Group and Bowman Change Inc., a strategic communication consultancy. He works with federal agencies, corporate leadership, entrepreneurs, and leading cultural institutions such as the NOAA and NASA and the National Academy of Sciences and the Aquarium of the Pacific. Tom's company received a cool California Small Business of the Year Award for decarbonizing business operations. We'll talk about that a little bit. It's in the book, too. His work received White House Champions of Change recognition, and he was inducted into the International Green Industry Hall of Fame. Tom is a popular public speaker and author of The Green Edge. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you, David. It's such a pleasure to be with you. And thank you for this book. You know, I have to admit the statement that you use to help people look at this. I think you can apply that to many other things in your life as well by by applying that same kind of thinking and making a statement that could, you know, you could work with that, the statement about the climate and you could work with other personal items yourself to to change things in your personal life at the same time. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we will disclose what that statement is. (laughs) Yes, we will. (laughs) We will. But uh, tell me a little bit more about why you thought it was important to write this. And it sounds like you you turned this around fairly quickly, like within the last year. Yes, I was actually invited to write this book in July of last year, and I delivered the manuscript, the first draft of the manuscript to the publisher on the 1st of August. Wow. So, and it was intended to be quick. The The books in this series, Resetting Our Future, yes. are all about how we rebuild from the COVID pandemic mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the economic displacement that's resulted from it in ways that solve some of the big, seemingly intractable, intractable social problems that we've always wanted to solve. Mm-hmm. This is a moment. This is a this is a moment of both tragedy and it turns out opportunity mm. because we've just witnessed how quickly societies can change. Yep. Uh, and so, if we're since we now know that that's true, right? The the question is, how do we then tackle? the the problems of systemic racism of climate change of inequity you know inequality and fin- and uh, economic uh, inequality and other things that that are vexing I mean we've been taught to think can't be solved right or they're so big that we don't know where to start exactly and exactly. you know and I'm I'm so glad you mentioned about how we could see how society can change very quickly. And, and that's something as we started to get into this COVID-19 lockdown that I thought, 
you know, at least looking at a, a bad situation, trying to get some good coming out of it, I thought, here, he, this is an opportunity. We could retool. We could change, you know, companies are, are shut down. They can't manufacture. What a great time to retool. And we did see some companies retooling to help with COVID-19. Um, mm-hmm. And I thought, why not do the same thing around green energy, around trying to get things back? You know, as you say in your book, we saw the air clean up. We saw the rivers clean. We saw, you know, the streets become quieter. So uh, all of those kind of things. So so in part, that that's what I guess this thinking is about. Yeah, the truth is that that we human. I spend a lot of time, my time with social scientists mm. on this issue of how to. Uh, why is it? I mean, the vexing question for me is: if climate change is is so apparent to some of us that we organize our lives around solving it, why is it not so evident to everyone else? Or to put it differently, why do so few people seem motivated and feel empowered enough to take this on and right. make it their own? That was kind of the 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 nut, the the crux question that I've been trying to solve for a long time. And and how do we then create a culture that supports that supports one another and supports our political establishment mm. in addressing the climate crisis effectively? Mm. Um, and I think I cracked the nut here. Uh, <laughs> um, and it sounds like it resonated with you a little bit, David, as we as we get into it. So, you know, we can talk about how that all, how my thinking about this has is actually working. Yeah. And, you know, mentioning the thinking, that that's part of, I would have loved to have been involved with that whole process and heard uh, those conversations as you guys uh, were, were, you know, delving into this and trying to come up with some answers around how do we do exactly what you were saying, uh, get people engaged, how do we get them engaged to feel like the, it's something that they can actually manage, that they can make a change, that what they're going to do is actually going to make a change and be, and be helpful and not feel like, wow, well, yeah, so Oh, I'm I'm recycling and you know, but I'm doing the, the what, best. Right? Yeah, right. <laughs> and and I keep hearing that people are saying only 20% of it's going to actually end up in the recycling anyway. The other 80% goes to the landfill. So you know, you, we keep hearing all of that kind of stuff. And and I guess you know that's another part of this is is the the information and the misinformation that you delve into with this book as well. Um. So let's uh, let's get into this a little bit. Okay. So um, yeah. Go ahead. Well, let me, let me just let me just comment on what you've just said, sure. um, because you're you're demonstrating, I think, the most pernicious uh, misunderstanding we have. We have been taught to believe that we're powerless mm. when it comes to the climate crisis, mm-hmm. and we've been taught that in a couple of different ways. Um, we've we've been taught about about climate uh, change by climate scientists primarily, mm-hmm. and. Um, and I'm not dissing climate scientists. You know, we we desperately need them, and they are incredibly generous with their inf- with their knowledge. But there's a way that scientists approach problems that that I think for most of us creates a, a misunderstanding. And and this here's the crux of that: scientists study global systems. The climate is a is a complex. Uh, a set of global systems that interact with each other. It's the oceans, the atmosphere, the mm-hmm. sunlight from the sun, mm-hmm. the cryosphere, which is the polar ice caps that reflect sunlight. It's the, the lithosphere, you know, the the rocks and mountains and earth that actually absorb a little bit of carbon out of the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And it's the biosphere, all the plants, trees, animals, right. uh, and humans that 
that interact in ways that either create more carbon in the atmosphere or less. So this system is very, very complex. And when scientists talk about what we need to do about climate change, the language they use and the language that has been adopted by politicians is that we need to make massive changes to incredibly complicated global human systems too. Everything from urban planning and urban infrastructure and waste management to food production and forest management to transportation systems that serve hometowns and span the world to financial markets and global international aid development, developmental aid and politics at, and governance at every level from the most local to the, to the global. And, it, and you, what, you, what you are taught to think is that this is a web, it's kind of a Gordian knot of interacting massive global systems. And as you try to figure out just one piece of it, you talked about recycling. Okay, I'm going to try to reduce waste. And I start pulling on that thread in this Gordian knot. And pretty soon I'm pulling on supply chains and consumer markets and consumer behavior and the oceans where so much plastic ends up and on and on and on. And, and the result is that you're faced with a problem that's too big for you to solve. Mm. And, you're, and you're taught that the only thing we can do is, is worry about our own behavior. Our, our, we get shamed for our behavior if we fly, if we throw something away, if we eat the wrong food. Mm -hmm. And we know that, those, that the scope of our individual comp uh, contributions are quite small. And we're also told that we have to, since societies can't move quickly, we're stuck in this situation for mm -hmm. decades. Mm -hmm. uh, and it makes us feel powerless. Yep. Yeah, so, so that's where we are. And the, and the question I raise in the book is, um, is that interpretation, you know, that's not reality. That's an interpretation of reality, mm. right? It's an idea. Mm -hmm. Are those ideas helpful? Okay. Are they helping us solve this problem or are they making things worse? And the conclusion I come to is that, it, that that interpretation is actually doing us a lot of harm. So we need a different one. Right. And that's, uh, that leads us into the book and leads us into the kind of thinking that you put into this that you then uh, have come up with in terms of how we can look at the climate crisis uh, that we now find ourselves in. So, I mean, I mean, the first the first chapter that you start with, you, we basically we've been discussing that is and that is, are we too late to solve the climate crisis uh, for the reasons that we have just been discussing uh, partly? Yeah. And the answer to that question is, how could we possibly be too late? It's only caused by uh, by human behavior. And there's new evidence, in fact, that if we were to stop burning fossil fuels and contributing carbon to the atmosphere today, the temperatures right. would level off. Mm -hmm. today mm -hmm. um, because the the climate systems uh, you know we've been told that there's this inertia and it'll take it will keep warming the planet for decades even if we stopped today yep. well the new research says that's not true that if we stop today global warming stops today now we still have all that that extra carbon in the atmosphere we want to find ways to, like plant forests and other ways to try to draw it back out mm -hmm. but it means that we're not stuck in the, in this in this trajectory yeah, I, I actually interviewed someone um, uh, in the last couple of months also that talked about 
basically, you know, reforesting and looking at different ways that we can uh, farm, for instance. You know, we talk about cattle. Mm-hmm. We talk about all the, the meat that we want to eat and all of the food, so much of the, the, the food that is generated, not for human consumption, but for the animals that are turned into food products. Um, and the massive amounts uh, of, of land that is being consumed for the purpose of uh, of uh, uh, Cattle farms, you know, places where we are growing these, these, uh, having these farms for the animals. And because of how that, uh, you know, that is being used, it is actually contributing to the, the global warming um, and also about farms that are just uh, growing a single products instead of you know mm. having a multitude of, of things and and seeing how all of that these natural environments uh, are really these carbon wonderful areas that just soak up the carbon that we are making and we're taking that away from the planet so uh, you know there was talk about hey if we just started to look at this and started to farm differently uh, and started to plant things differently and let our animals graze naturally and do all of this stuff it, it's a process that the world had going on for a long time that worked and and we sort of took that away from it so the, and they said within 20 years we could we could see a difference in, in in the temperature and and it's starting to drop so there's all those those wonderful ideas you know that that are there out there um, that that are all part of this way that we could start looking at this differently now you know chapter two is is kind of like the idea that we're getting to and and tom what you have said about you know how we can look at this differently and that of course well hey why don't we just hang the climate crisis upside down look at it differently. right right <laughs> let me let me tell you that story uh, because it it has stuck with me for a very long time when i was a college student i was an art major and I was working on a painting that just wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. You know, everything I tried failed. And, uh, and I was just getting incredibly frustrated. And my teacher came up to me and he said, I'll tell you what you do. Hang it on the wall upside down and go home. Because when you see it tomorrow, upside down, it's going to look different to you. It's gonna, and, and you're going to know exactly what to do. And I can tell you that that technique when you're working on design problems works beautifully but there's a there's a more general um, statement that he was making and that is if you disrupt your expectations if you disrupt what you think you know Mm. you suddenly discover opportunities that you hadn't recognized were there and they were there the whole time right Um, and so this applies this this method applies to any problem that you can't solve And and here's the trick to that when you can't solve a problem, and we're acting like we can't solve climate change, go looking for the assumption to see if there's one assumption or one premise or one requirement or specification that is common in every every attempt you make to solve the problem. And if you can find one, the more fundamental it is, the better. Try setting it aside and see what happens. You know, that's... So take your assumption that's always part of every solution that fails and set it aside. Mm. And that's hard for people to do because it seems like we're setting everything aside when we do that. And that's the point. (laughs) Um, That's what makes this so effective. And when we do that, when we hang the climate, our picture of the climate crisis upside down, this idea that we're dealing with a Gordian knot of entangled 
global systems that are too complex to sort out. It's what scientists call a wicked problem. Mm. You can't solve it. You can only manage it. When we turn that upside down, we discover that almost everything else is a distraction from a single thing we need to do, and that is stop burning fossil fuels. And we want to do it quickly because we don't want to continue to warm the climate system. So there's an imperative to move quickly, and we don't want to fail because the consequences are going to be so horrific. So that boils down to a simple statement uh, that you alluded to earlier. And the statement <laughs> is, stop burning fossil fuels well before mid-century and absolutely, positively do not fail. Right. This changes, believe it or not, everything um, because it suddenly puts climate action within our grasp. It gives us only one thing to worry about. And it means we can apply that to every decision our businesses, our governments, our households, our organizations make. And it also has this really interesting um, psychological shift, which says that it's not my individual carbon emissions that matter. It's our collective carbon emissions that matter. But my actions as an individual become really important because the things I choose to do are social signals to everybody else that we're taking action on this on this together. Mm -hmm. And so the more we do this, the more you reduce your emissions, the more I reduce my emissions, and the more we talk about it, and the more our households and businesses do it, the more it becomes the expectation of everyone and our, uh, you know, basic, basically it resets a baseline assumption in our culture in a really constructive way that empowers us. Mm. Right. Empowers and gives us hope uh, that there is something we can do that will actually make a change. And it's interesting that that's where changes normally have to start within us. We have to see things differently. We have to see that opportunity somewhere so that we can start taking that action or feel like we can start taking that action. So we're going to repeat that uh, statement that you came up with, which, which is in this book. Stop burning fossil fuels well before mid-century and absolutely positively do not fail. It, it is a simple statement, just like you, your book starts out by the title, What If Solving the Climate Crisis is Simple. It is a simple statement. However, it also gives us a, a, a goal. It gives us a date. It gives us something to work towards. And as you say, it's, it is something that can be adopted by every person, government, businesses, organizations, uh, everyone can look at this and and start adopting something to start to work towards that. And and you have a, another example of that, Tom, don't you, that you share in your book about your own business and, and how you started to work towards that. But before yep. we get to that, that, that story, something led you up to that. It, it was, you were at an event, I believe, you, you, uh, and, and you heard about Project Agro, and, and it floored you. you. You were stunned, I think. Um, so I learned climate science in 2003 and 2004 from members of the National Academy of Sciences in the mm. United States. Mm -hmm. This is the, the most prestigious honor society for scientists uh, in the United States. And it was commissioned by Abraham Lincoln to advise the government on matters of science, medicine, and engineering. So all those National Research Council reports that you hear about uh, on every topic are written by members of the National Academy of Sciences. 
So they decided to create a museum and I was fortunate enough to be invited to, to lead the design team to do it. And in order to figure out how to explain climate science to the public, back in 2003, I needed to understand what the scientists were talking about. So I essentially got a, a crash course, you know, uh, mm -hmm. uh, independent study graduate course mm -hmm. in climate science <laughs> from some of the most eminent scientists in the world. And I remember at the time uh, asking the the lead science officer on the project, "Aren't you concerned? Doesn't you know what do you make of all this?" And and his answer was, "Thank goodness, it's very serious, but thank goodness we have time to figure it out because humanity would never do something so unwise as to as to warm the climate system a lot." So, you know, I went back to my life a little bit uh, concerned, but. But I was running a business. I got back to life as, as everyone does. And th just two years later, I was invited to work on another climate change exhibit for the, this one for the Birch Aquarium, which is part of the Scripps Institution of Oceanography in Southern California. And that is a, uh, they do 80% of their scientific research on earth systems. So lots of climate science research goes on there. And there was another group of, you know, world-class climate scientists who were, who were working as the steering committee for this project. And there I was sitting in their conference room, which sits high on a bluff overlooking La Jolla Cove, the beautiful Pacific Ocean on a sunny day in, in Southern California. I mean, it was, it was endless summer idyllic, you know. Mm. And I casually mentioned to the science curator that the folks at the National Academies had told me, keep an eye on the oceans because water can absorb so much heat before the temperature rises that when the oceans finally do start to warm, we will be committed to global warming for 500 to 1,000 years. And I, I just said that casually. And she said equally casually, oh, we're, we're part of Project Argo, 2,500 robotic floats sampling the ocean all over the world. And she said, we've already measured warming in every ocean basin in the world to a depth of a thousand meters. And just think of, for a moment about how much heat that is mm. and how much water that is. You know, mm. if it's four fifths of the earth's surface is covered mm. by water. Mm -hmm. Most of that water is barely above freezing. And yet they've warm, they've measured warming in the top thousand meters of it right. already. Right. Well, this was, you know, in, in religious language, an epiphany is dis defined as a sudden intuitive insight into mm -hmm. the reality of something. Mm -hmm. And epiphanies aren't always spiritual or religious. Right. Um, uh, in that instant, all of the, all of what I knew about the future of climate change and the horrors and the trauma and the worries came home to, to roost in just a flash of insight when I realized just how far down the road on global warming we already were. And it was a palpable thing. The hackle stood up on my neck. Um, I felt like there was a predator right behind me. You know, mm. I mean, it had that physical right. quality to it. Uh, and, and she casually said, oh, by the way, my boss would like to meet you now for the first time. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, anyone who's ever owned a business knows that the the main thing you want to do when you meet your client for the first time is you want to be cool. Right. You know, you want, you want to be confident. Nothing's a problem. You're ready to go to work. And I walked into her office and sat down and I was literally trembling. Mm. 
And she chatted for a moment and she looked at me and she said, is there anything you want to ask me? And I said, yes. How do you cope with knowing what you know? Mm. And this, this was one of those moments where you can never squeeze the toothpaste back into the tube. You know, mm. mm-hmm. I couldn't unlearn what I had learned. Right. And it, it led me ultimately to sell my design business and to start Bowman Change because um, there was so much work to be done on climate communication that that wasn't about exhibits. It wasn't about mm. design projects. Mm. Um, and that led to where I am, you know, many other, many other things and a lot of other learning and ultimately to a sense of real empowerment um, mm. as we as we try to tackle this. Right. Oh, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. It's one of those things that stood out to me as I read the book, so I, I want to thank you for doing that. We are now joined by Deb Morrison. She's online. Deb, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, you've been listening in the background, and I know that we're going to talk more about uh, the the project that you and Tom worked on called Empowering Climate Action in the United States. We're going to talk to uh, you about that. But, uh, Deb, as you've been listening, uh, what are your thoughts on, on what uh, Tom was saying there so far? I think that the epiphany that he's describing is very much something that many people face, and, and the dilemma that happens is that as you face this understanding of the magnitude of changes that are happening around us and that are increasing, we have to start to think about how do we foster authentic hope of what we can do and, and that every single person can do something, you know, Um, and like Tom made a, a radical shift in his life. Many of us need to make particular shifts to make different choices in our daily lives and in what our organizations are doing. And I think that's a, a key take-home from that, mm. from what Tom just described. Right. Nice. If, I can, if I can piggyback on that, Deb and I are good at piggybacking. <laughs> um, I, I don't want to leave your listeners with a sense of, of traumatic epiphany yes. because that's not where it ended for me. It no. put me on an emotional roller coaster yep. for a few years. Yep. Uh, but as you mentioned earlier, I, I decided to try to decarbonize my business yes. and the, um, the what we call a stretch goal, mm-hmm. the, the goal that we have to decarbonize quickly. Um, I adopted that that strategy, and it turned out that within 15 months, we had reduced our operational emissions by two-thirds, and I had saved money in the process. Uh-huh. Yes. And so we won a statewide award in California um, from the California Air Resources Board, which is the California Environmental Protection Agency. Two years later, they asked me to, to speak to the new crop of inductees who had had won that year's awards and when i when i thought about what to talk about i decided i wasn't going to give a typical business language kind of talk i decided to just be honest about what motivated me what my frustrations were because i i you know ran into roadblocks just like everyone does and and i described how once we discovered how much we had reduced emissions it it utterly changed my company's culture mm-hmm. because my employees who liked working there anyway suddenly had a new sense of mission that was very gratifying to them and so i described all this mm-hmm. 
Stop burning fossil fuels well before mid-century and absolutely positively do not fail. Keep that in mind as we take this pause and come right back with uh, Tom Bowman and Deb Morrison. We're going to talk to them more about their book and more about the action that we can take uh, for action for climate empowerment. So stay tuned. We'll be right back after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. All right, we are back. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, and my guests here on the show are Deb Morrison and Tom Bowman. Uh, I gave Tom an introduction off the top of the show. We were talking about his book, What If Solving the Climate Crisis is Simple? And I recommend everyone find this book, pick it up and read it. You will be surprised and I think also encouraged by what you're seeing and hearing uh, as it stimulates your, your mind to think about how we might be able to look at this climate situation that we find ourselves in as we come out of COVID and start to get back to some sort of normalcy uh, and start to look at this, this climate issue that we have that is a crisis. So for me, I'm motivated to try and find a solution for our planet and for our youth, because they are the future, and we, we owe it to them. We, you know, we borrow this planet from our youth, so we are handing it to them, and we need to do something. We need to take some action to do something, to give them hope for the future. So what I didn't do was introduce Deb. So I'll tell you something about uh, Deb Morrison, Dr. Deb Morrison. She served as a strategic designer and writing team co-lead for the U.S. Action for Climate Empowerment Strategic Planning Framework. Deb has been involved in climate and justice learning design as a researcher practice uh, partner with uh, numerous communities and as an implementer for systemic change. She is part of the leadership team designing and implementing the Climate Time Initiative in Washington State, and she's a board member of the Climate Literacy and Energy Awareness Network, CLEAN, and is involved in designing and implementing the Research Practice Partnership for Advancing Coherent and Equitable Systems of Science Education. Deb co-chairs the National Association of Research in Science Teaching, and a policy and programs committee. She serves on the steering committee for the UNFCCC, ECOS and Community, and sits on the Climate Action Steering Committee. She is the author of numerous books, chapters, and articles on education, justice, sciences, and justice for science education. So it's a pleasure to welcome Deb to the show, Deb Morrison. And both you and Tom, it's a pleasure to have you both on the show. I was so happy that we were able to uh, line this up and have you both participate in this show to talk about the climate and the, uh, the, the climate crisis that we find ourselves in. going to throw it back over to Tom because he has a story to finish up about his own business and what he was doing to try to make some changes uh, to reduce the carbon footprint that they were doing and how that empowered his, his staff. I think that's where you were leaving that off, weren't you, Tom? Yes, David, thanks. Um, and I don't want to get into the, the picky details. We yeah. did pretty, pretty mundane things. Um, but we reduced our emissions by two-thirds. And, and the most amazing thing to me that happened is that it caused us to rethink the way we were doing things for years and, and not changing. You know, for example, I had two employees who were driving 100 miles a day to the office. Right. And it suddenly dawned on me, 
let's not do that anymore. You guys only come in one day a week. You're mm-hmm. going to work at home, uh, and let's see if we can make it work. And we did. What happened is that that the employees felt a different sense of ownership and commitment to the work they were doing because they felt like they were part of something bigger than themselves mm-hmm. and bigger than just having a job and making money. And, you know, we were a good workplace in the first place, but mm-hmm. all of a sudden it became a real sense of, of uh, gratification for people to be part of it. And so I told that story. I mentioned I was asked to give a talk to the, to the, you know, the winners of the Cool California Small Business of the Year Award a couple of years later. And I told a very personal story and I talked about this being the main benefit of it. And when I was done, one of the other uh, awardees asked if she could say a few words. So I handed the mic to her and she told a very personal story about why she had worked so hard to decarbonize her business. And when she was done, the next guy said, can I say something? And the microphone passed to him. He also didn't tell a business story. He talked personally about what this meant to him. And the microphone found its way all the way around the room. You know, there Mm. were probably six or eight people, business owners Mm. who spoke, finally came to a guy who said, I can't tell you how amazing it is to finally be in a business meeting where I can talk about what I really care about. And for me, this was the this was the light bulb going on because it says there are climate leaders among us everywhere. It says that there is passion and knowledge and experience everywhere. And that's a good reason for hope. Our our job really is to bring these voices forward collectively mm. because there is a lot more going on beneath the surface than most of us are aware of. Mm. Can I ask what your sense was of when he made that statement, how the other participants reacted at the same time. There was this sense of, of <laughs> there's a sense that happens when, whenever you get a bunch of entrepreneurs together and they talk about climate change, you come out of that feeling buoyed up and mm. hopeful and inspired mm. because mm. the people who are willing to own, to launch a business um, tend to be people who refuse to fail. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there's this mentality of of we're going to find a way to make it work all the time. And then you see these people deeply committed to the things that you care about most. And there's this this spirit of, oh, finally, there's a sense of relief and a sense of real joy that you get um, that everyone seems to to share. Um, It's it's not it's not doom and gloom. It's incredibly optimistic and mutually empowering. It's really, mm. it's really something to see. And in this ACE work, I saw exactly right. the same thing. You see a whole bunch of people who have deep experience and knowledge and wisdom about this, who are optimistic and who are, who refuse to fail. And it is the most, it, it's the most thrilling kind of experience you can have. Mm. Nicely said. I think that does set up nicely into the next project. Although, Tom, it would be so nice to to talk more about your book. I, we could, there is so much more we could elaborate on. Um, but we also have this other work that both you and Deb worked on, and that is uh, Resetting Our Future, Empowering Climate Action in the United States. And you mentioned the uh, Action for Climate Empowerment, and that is part, uh, you talk about that. Your chapter six in your book leads into uh, this, uh, Empowering Climate Action. Can you tell me, Deb, can you introduce this for us? Tell us something about how did you and Tom end up working on this together? 
it's a, a web of, of connections. And okay. I think that teaches us a lot about how to go forward, actually. Okay. Um, so I've been working in this space for a long time in, in sort of K-12 learning mm. and in learning design more generally. Um, and I believe, Tom, our connection is through Frank Neopold, who is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration climate change educator for the U.S. Um, and we, he's funded things like the Climate and Literacy Energy Awareness Network um, and a number of other sort of efforts that we've overlapped on. And I know he overlapped with Tom in a lot of different areas. And so it was a common touch point that connected us. Um, but the ACE work itself had been sort of moving for some time. Um, ACE is this acronym for Action for Climate Empowerment. Right. Thank you. And um, yeah, we, it had been moving for a little bit with sort of myself and Frank and some others in the, the U.S. trying to sort of push this work forward. Um, and finally, we just decided to go for it without a lot of funding. We got a small seed grant from Spencer Foundation. And um we're able to kind of get it moving, and Tom came on board at that point for this okay. particular project. All right, and uh, and then what happened? So, how did it end up that you guys started editing and putting this together? Then, so I think one thing to note about this is it's it's a huge community effort. There right. was, I think, you know, eight or ten people on the coordinating community or committee, and and then we involved hundreds of different people in in the community. Um, in feedback and discussion sessions, and all of that was coordinated by the, the coordinating team and the bevy of volunteers. And one of the things that they asked us to do in that, because both Tom and I have experienced writing, um, was to be able to pull together um, the written synthesis of mm -hmm. all the dialogues. Um, and we have really different backgrounds. I come from more of an academic writing background and know the research really well in this space. And Tom comes from um, communications background. Mm -hmm. um, and so we've learned a ton working together, um, but really trying to synthesize the, the voices of folks in ways that it's not speaking for them, but lifting their voice into a coherent message, a co coherent mm. strategy. Mm -hmm. um, so even though we're the authors on the, the framework officially, it is authored by the Action for Climate Empowerment community, which includes an enormous number of people from Indigenous, Black, people of color communities, um, communities of educators and scientists, all, all different folks. Right. And as you were writing this, you guys were involved with this. Of course, 2020 was a very active year yeah. with so many things, uh, COVID yeah. being one of them, but also an election taking place in the United States. Um, how was that? That must have been in the back of your minds, at least, as you were trying to put this forward uh, with the United States had pulled out of the Paris Agreement. Um, what were your, as you were trying to put this together, were you trying to think of how this might uh, be written so for a future audience. Uh, I mean, obviously now, of course, we've heard uh, that that um, uh, President Biden is is going to rejoin the Paris Agreement. I understand if he hasn't already. Yes, yes, he he is in the process of doing that. Yeah, and we were really strategic. That's one of the reasons that we decided to go ahead with essentially very minimal funding at the time we did because we could see not only nationally in the US, but internationally, there is this moment happening right now where people are starting to understand what the Action for Climate Empowerment Program can do to accelerate climate action. And we wanted to ensure that an example of that started to be created 
in a way that held justice in the center so that it, it wasn't only for the U.S. election, right. but it was also geared at the international community that's starting to coalesce around ACE work. And we yeah. wanted to make sure that there's a really solid example of justice leading um, so that was that was really strategic. The timing of it, right? And just um, again, the the action for climate empowerment is is something out of the United Nations. Is that correct? It is. It's 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 rooted actually, you know, twenty plus years ago in the original UNFCCC, the con, con, uh, Conference on Climate Change mm-hmm. or Convention on Climate Change, um, and it was Article Six in that original document. Mm-hmm. Um, but more people are familiar with the Paris Agreement, yep. which was in two thousand fifteen, mm-hmm. and it's Article Twelve of the Paris Agreement. And right. so it includes things like education, which is what most people think of when they think of it. But it also includes training, so green energy jobs, all sorts of training right. for politicians, for policymakers, um, public awareness, public access to information, public participation, which I think is really critical, and international collaboration. Yeah, and we could, and and why don't we start sort of delving into some of those different areas you just mentioned, and certainly why. Why write this book, Empowering Climate Action in the United States? This is, this is as you say, that, uh, that whole thing about taking action uh, for climate empowerment is something that every country is supposed to be doing. They're supposed to be coming mm-hmm. with their own plan. And it allows everyone to approach this differently according to where they're coming from, their particular situations that they find themselves in. But it also doesn't make it a centralized sort of a, an approach, Correct. Well, it could be a centralized approach. It depends how a national government went at it. But we're Mm. arguing that it shouldn't be. We're arguing that it should be a community-owned and co-generated approach. Because by doing that, we're actually acknowledging the deep history of work that's going on in communities and, you know, some national organizations, but a lot of it at a grassroots organization level. And we're leveraging all those amazing things that are going on. Um, and learning from them, learning from the incredible work that's been done. Mm. And so we think that government has to be involved because they're obviously key players and key funders, mm-hmm. but that a national strategy would also actually be a strategy for philanthropic organizations to right. think about how to use funding in a way that furthers collective work in a really strategic way instead of just randomly throwing money into the pot. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a national plan really should be developed with funding from the government, but it should coordinate and work with civil society deeply. And now, can I, can yes. I add a comment to that? Please, Tom, yeah. Just, just, uh, just for your listeners, think of what, how big, what we're talking about <laughs> is, to for a country like the United States to try to develop a national strategy right. to empower uh, and engage the public in right. finding and implementing solutions to the climate right. challenge. Mm-hmm. This ACE project brought together, I think it was 150 to 200 people. They're indigenous leaders and indigenous rights. Uh, activists, their youth movement leaders, their uh, community leaders, um, their you know BIPOC, Black, uh, and other people of color were involved. Their educators involved. What are called informal educators, which means aquariums, museums, zoos, and cultural centers. There were behavioral scientists of different kinds, decision scientists involved, people from uh, elected officials from cities and uh, uh, sustainability officers from cities. There and there were people from federal agencies. There, there has never been 
a, the community of diverse community of people who are working on public empowerment coming together to create a shared vision and specific recommendations for how climate policies can advance this ACE agenda before. Uh, and that's what made this process so extraordinary, I think. Mm. Okay. I just want to let everyone know you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Now, you can also listen to us online uh, through uh, elementfm.ca and you can also uh, catch our uh, our interviews and conversations online through our SoundCloud and, of course, your favorite podcast platform. So please be advised that if you've missed a part of this or you've missed a conversation you want to go back to, it will be up online for you to go back to and listen to at your leisure and share. Um, now, you know, there is, I'm glad you mentioned about about the scope of this, Tom. I, I, of course, understand. I was going to try to to lead into that a little bit or take it back a little bit, sort of full circle, because of that scope. And even though in the new book, you know, Empowering Climate Action in the United States, it's it, it's I didn't see it in there, I didn't see it referenced, but certainly your your comment from your, your first book that we talked about earlier, What If Solving the Climate Crisis is Simple? You've got that statement that you came up with, and that is, stop burning fossil fuels well before mid-century and absolutely positively do not fail. Deb and Tom, is that statement something that was in your mind as you were you were going through this or or do you think that we should keep that in mind as we are looking at how to take action for climate empowerment? Yeah, it was definitely, it, it actually is funny because it came out of the dialogues. Tom didn't yeah. actually have to see that into the dialogues. It came <laughs> out of the dialogues. Right. Um, and part of that is the result of so many of the justice communities being involved. Mm. So if we don't stop, you know, burning fossil fuels, if we do carbon credits and all that type of thing, then often what happens is the negative impacts, the negative externalities, they mm. go to communities of color usually. Mm. And so really, if we're going to engage from a justice perspective, we really have to stop burning fossil fuels. Right. And we have to work with communities in all different locations to, and I, this example is done in the U.S., I would argue where we really badly need to do this in Canada as well. Mm. Um, but we really need to be working with and from the knowledge bases of communities that are already engaged in this work. Mm -hmm. And most of them are saying we need to stop burning fossil fuels like right away. Yep. You know, the other thing, as we get into the empowering uh, climate action in the United States, and you break this down and you, you do get into the nitty gritty of all the complications around trying to uh, to get everyone involved, to get everyone on board. You don't, you don't, it seems like everyone was approached like they should have been. And you talk a lot about how thinking has to change uh, and, and how people have to be engaged, uh, not just uh, approached or, you know, pay lip service to. You, you talked about the BIPOC communities, you talked about indigenous communities, absolutely. 
And you talked about how in many situations, uh, those communities, those people are the ones that are mostly directly affected by a lot of the, the, the things that are happening with the climate now. Um, I'd like to, to mention something about social change here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm just thinking of a quotation from Joe Biden when mm-hmm. he was he was going through one of his days of huge numbers of executive orders in his first week in office. Um, he was talking about democracy in the United States. And, and he said, um, he basically said, we don't have to change everybody. Enough of us mm. have to be engaged to benefit all of us. Mm. And, and the wisdom of that comment is that when enough of us are engaged in climate justice and climate action, which which we would argue are inseparable things. Um, it sets the tone for everyone else, and it creates the shared expectations for everyone else. So, you know, there's been a huge focus in climate outreach to focus on the deniers, on the people who are least amenable mm. to to uh-huh. this kind of action. And the ACE work, I think, um, Deb, you can disagree if you if you do, mm-hmm. but um, it focuses first on the most amenable, the people uh-huh. who are care, and it elevates the voices who, of people who are already active, so that so that all of a sudden larger groups kind of start to to come into this tent together. Um, it's it's sort of called the diffusion of innovation idea, uh, and so the the deniers are a shrinking population anyway vast majorities of of people in the united states think we should be doing more to stop global warming so um so you work from the most engaged outward to gradually create a nice safe place for everyone else to accept this too yeah i think about that as the adjacent like you want to do you want to work with the people who are most adjacent to being shifted in in and being activated in terms of climate change and you know something that came up earlier about the idea of of storytelling um that tom was describing at the the top of this yes was the idea that historically we've thought about change as like we just need people to understand why climate change is happening and what we need to do and they will change their behaviors well, behavioral science says that's not true. That's one piece of it. But what we need to do is we actually need to get on the same value system. We mm. need to come to a shared set of values. And that's an emotional move. Mm. We need to understand how to tell stories to each other, how to care about each other and work in relation to each other. And by doing that, we actually, you know, we find that joy that Tom was talking about. We struggle. Bettina Love calls that like the you know, finding black joy, she describes it as black joy, working through struggle to actually authentically gain joy by a shared um, effort. And that's what we're really talking about. We're we're talking about how we tell stories together, how we share our learning across networks, how we build coalitions in relation to each other and work for a, a shared value system. Interesting. Uh, a couple of things come to mind as both of you were talking there. Uh, Tom, what you were saying about Joe Biden and his comments, I couldn't help but think about COVID-19 and how, you know, not everyone necessarily wants to get the uh, the vaccine. But again, it goes back to that herd immunity, right? Um, enough people have to do it. Enough people have to get the, this shot. Um, and, uh, and so that same kind of 
thing translates into what you were just saying. Enough people have to do that. And, well, there's also... Oh, I'm sorry. I'm interrupting. No, it's okay. Um, and, and Deb, what you were just saying about stories and about being able to share stories so that we can communicate in that regard, to share that, to get an understanding of each other. Again, I couldn't help but think about situations that erupt with uh, within indigenous standoffs, those kind of things. When those uh, when those communications start to take place, the indigenous communities are usually trying to tell stories. They're trying That's to, right. right? They're usually trying to do that. So yeah. interesting. Yeah, we have so much to learn from the way that you know story work is done in indigenous communities, and there there are long traditions of that type of, of narrative storytelling in, mm-hmm. in black communities and communities of color mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. And those are some of the things that carry with them the value system, right? Because mm-hmm. stories do something that straight up factual knowledge in Western science doesn't do. Right. It carries with it a set of values and meaning uh, about how we should be in the world. Mm-hmm. And that's the part I think that we've lost touch with. We've mm-hmm. become a little cold and calculating when we think of, you know, reductionist science. Right. And Many scientists who have been trained in that kind of Western science are starting to understand and realize that, too, as they engage as activists in climate science work. Right. Uh, Deb, you also mentioned earlier about Canada and about, uh, you know, getting this this uh, ACE work getting done in Canada. Uh, and I understand you also did some UN local communities and Indigenous peoples platform work. Uh, you, did you want to share anything on that? I just feel so honored to, to be invited in as an observer into the local communities and indigenous people's platform work. There's just such incredible humility in that community and knowledge that we have to, to gain in terms of how to be and how to act in the world. So the work that they're doing is incredible. And I think they will be launching a, a public facing website shortly. Mm. Um, the Canadian effort, I think, you know, there are so many Canadians in that UN space. It was, it was, mm. it was humbling too. Um, and the Canadian work, we're starting to build more coalitions um, with the Canadian Climate Action Network, um, with the Canadian government, Environment and Climate Change Canada. And with local communities, we just launched um, last week, we just launched a BC Climate Action Network mm. regional hub. And um, so trying to figure out how to build with the, you know, the Métis Association of Canada with the First Nations Assembly, um, reaching out and building those types of networks and coalitions, there has been much work done. And I think bringing it in under the ACE umbrella as a national strategy is going to be a key effort in Canada because um, Canada could potentially lead the way. You know, the U.S. is... A big system to move and Canada is a little more coordinated in some ways so you know all of us internationally have to be moving and the more examples we can get of different ways of doing this the better so I'm excited to think that Canada might actually have the ability to do this Nice. Okay, thank you. We're going to have to wrap it up, unfortunately. It has been fascinating having both of you on here. What do you want this to do for moving forward? You know the biggest Thing that I would say is I really want us to start thinking about how decision making and funding is made in and resourced in into communities that can actually engage and learn from each other across networks mm. that we don't have to have this big top heavy structure we can have a very fluid dynamic effort um, and that's what I hope to see going forward because it really holds power in communities and disperses it in a much more just way. Okay. Tom? Uh, I agree 100%. I mean, the you know, we want 
the United States to come up with a national strategy. We want it to be co-developed between the government and the communities of practice that were involved in this ACE framework. If the United States government balks, uh, we have generated a movement here that's growing. And, and our hope, I think, is that this ground up, from the ground up uh, effort will increasingly take hold and in order to accomplish all the things that Deb just said. Well, thank you both for taking the time to join us on the show. It's been a pleasure speaking with both of you. Bye-bye. That is the voice of Deb Morrison. She is one of the editors of Empowering Climate Action in the United States, along with Tom Bowman. He is the other editor on that book. Tom also has a book entitled, What If Solving the Climate Crisis is Simple? And you can pick that up at your local bookstore, find it online, I'm sure. Please check them both out. Give them a read. You will be pleasantly surprised and empowered when reading this book. And maybe you will find reason to not look at the climate crisis with such overpowering despair and that nothing we do or that I can do will make a difference. Yes, we can. And it's time we have to. And we have to for our children and for this planet. That's the show for today. I'm David Moses, your host on Moment of Truth, and we will see you again tomorrow. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.